Today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to those of you for whom that is applicable. For some of you, your very first Father's Day. And so congratulations to you. Now, the very first thing in our passage this morning that Jesus says are the words, do not be troubled or do not be afraid. Now, I believe that this message we have this morning is for everyone, but the more I've thought about it, the more I have meditated on it, the more I believe that this message is of particular importance for fathers. The message, do not be troubled, do not be afraid, is especially applicable to fathers. Now, when I was younger, the idea that you would tell a dad, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, well, that seemed like a waste of your breath. What could dads be afraid of? They're the strong ones. They're the ones that are in control. They're in charge. They always seem to know what to do. They can open the peanut butter jar when you need them to. Dads have nothing to be afraid of. So I thought when I was a child, when I became a dad, I realized that it may perhaps be the most frightening and the most stressful position that someone can have in life. There is an incredible amount of trouble and burden that weighs on a dad's shoulders. I was recently reading in Newsweek, there was an article called uh, Dead Suit Walking. That was what it was entitled. And it was about how bad this recession has been, this recession that I think keeps going on and on, and how it especially has hit not only everyone, but also, finally, white-collar workers, whereas in previous recessions that had not been as true. In this recession, it is. And what they did in the article is they profiled two men, both of whom happened to be dads, and they interviewed them. Both of them were out of work. And as I read this article, the overwhelming emotion that came out of it was that of fear, that these two men were afraid that they were never going to be able to find a job again. That wasn't true in the first month or two in which they had been laid off, but I think in both cases it had been a year, a year and a half, maybe two years. In both cases, their wives had gone back to work so that there might be some income and what you heard in the statements that the fathers were making is this fear that their wives may no longer need them anymore. There was this growing apprehension that perhaps their children were losing respect for them. Now, I'm sure that wasn't true, but this seemed to be the weight that they were carrying on their shoulders. That as they looked around and said, what place do I have? How can I contribute? Their biggest fear, perhaps, seemed to be that instead of being able to be a provider, they now were seeing themselves as a drag on the family's finances and on the family situation. And you could feel the stress and the pressure and the fear resonating through that article as you read the story of those two dads. Even for those who do have jobs, the stress can be incredible. We're no longer in a world where people work from nine to five. Instead, jobs seem to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
That Blackberry can buzz at three in the morning with emails and we're constantly connected and the pressures and the burden of ever-increasing expectations can weigh heavily on a dad in the workplace. There's the pressure of thinking about saving for college or retirement, the issue of dealing with aging parents or perhaps being an aging parent. For all dads, there is that fear of the morally decaying society around us as we become afraid watching our children or our grandchildren operating in this society and worry about choices they might make that will have a lasting impact on them. There is always the physical and the mental as those powers begin to diminish. For dads, we realize that we're no longer the now generation. There is another generation in our house that is the primary focus. And we begin to realize that our time is passing and that the sun is setting on what we're doing. And there is the fear of failure and of not making a, having a legacy. The fear that our once great physical powers and mental prowess is beginning to fade. Technology is passing us by and our kids seem to understand stuff that we don't get. And then there's the stress and the trouble and the burden that goes along with ministering in God's kingdom. I said to you that when I left for my study break that I was spent, that I was beat down. It's true for anybody who serves in ministry, whether it's in a full-time capacity or as a lay person, is that when you come home from work and you want to be the spiritual leader in your family, there is difficulty related to that. That when you take those few moments of free time left in the schedule and think about trying to serve the Lord with them and then you enter into a position that is challenging or a role that is beyond you or there's antagonism or opposition and the cares and the concerns and the stresses are simply magnified there. And the more I've thought about it, while I do believe that this message is for everyone, it seems especially important to say to fathers this morning, do not let your hearts be troubled. So what I want to do is thinking about these stresses and cares and burdens and concerns is look at what God has to say to us this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. It's page 763 in the Bibles the church provides. There's one underneath your seat or in the rack in front of you. John chapter 14. The passage begins in verse number one with what I've already quoted. Jesus says to his disciples and to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now what he doesn't mean by this is he doesn't mean that we will never experience frightening events. He doesn't mean that there will be no stress in our lives. He doesn't mean even that we should never be troubled. After all, this same word is used of Jesus when he experiences the death of his friend Lazarus 
when he sees the despair that death has caused, it is said of Jesus that he was deeply troubled. The same word. It's also the word that's used in John 13 as Jesus contemplates the fact that Judas, this person that he's selected, that he's chosen, that he's poured into for these three years, is going to stab him in the back. And the thought of that betrayal is troubling to Jesus. It's also the same word that's used of Jesus as he thinks about the cross and the death that is waiting for him. He is deeply troubled in spirit. So what he's not saying is that you and I will be free from trouble, that there will be nothing stressful in this life, that we should not be frightened of anything, that nothing will ever happen that should cause us to be afraid. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that we are not to exist in a state of fear, that we are not to live being consumed by the trouble that is all around us. That's what he's commanding us to do. Don't let your hearts be overwhelmed by trouble. Don't let them be overwhelmed by fear. Don't let them be overwhelmed by the stress of the situation. Now, why is that his opening line? Why is that the opening statement that he makes in this long teaching section to his disciples? Well, the reason is, is that we have to remember back. This is called the upper room discourse because it's happening in the upper room on the night of the last supper. This is the last night Jesus will be physically present with his disciples. This is it, Thursday night. He will die the next day. And he's told them this. Look in chapter 13, just back a few verses. Verse number 33. Jesus says to them, my children, I will be with you only a little longer, just a few more hours. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. He's leaving. He's leaving his disciples. You see, up until this point, for the past three years, Jesus has watched over them. Jesus has taken care of them. When there was opposition and antagonism, Jesus took the criticism. Jesus protected them. Jesus taught them. He was the one who planned the itinerary. He was the one who made sure there was money available that supporters were giving. He was the one who provided the food, who cast out the demons, who healed the sick. He was the one when they were confused, said, no, let's go here. No, let's do that. He ran the show. In many ways, he was like a father to them. That's why in verse 33, he says, my children is that for the past three years, Jesus has acted as a father to these disciples. And now he's leaving. Dads, do you remember what it was like to live in your parents' house? Do you remember how life felt carefree back then? Now, I'm not saying it was. And so those who are children here this morning, please don't hear me saying that your life has no stress. It does. And Jesus is speaking to you this morning. There are troubles in life, even when you are a child. 
but when I became a dad. There are times when I look back on what it used to be like as a child, and there is a sense of nostalgia. There is a sense of longing for those stress, relatively stress-free days. See, now the burdens that my dad once bore are now on my shoulders. That's how these disciples are feeling. Jesus has been with them for three years, but now he's leaving. And the burdens of ministry and the worries about the future, who's going to take care of the money, who's going to tell us where to go, who's going to teach us, those burdens and cares are now being weighed on the disciples' shoulders. And so when Jesus begins his long teaching to them, the very first thing he says to them is, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now that you are in a position of responsibility, don't allow it to consume you with trouble and stress. But how's that possible? How's that possible to exist in the world we exist in with its trouble and its stress and its burdens and its cares? How do we keep from being consumed and living in a state of fear? Well, let's look at what Jesus says. Continuing in verse 1, he not only says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He continues, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus is talking about heaven here. And what he's saying to the disciples is, is that if you look at your circumstances, if you look at the fact that I am leaving, if you look at all of the stress and trouble in this world, your heart will be troubled. But if you can understand what's going on in heaven right now, and if you can get a glimpse of what's coming in the future, then that will set you free from living in a state of fear. That if we could roll back the clouds of heaven like a scroll and peer into what's going on there right now, to know what's coming tomorrow, suddenly what's happening today would become less frightening and less stressful and less troubling. So what is going on in heaven today? Well, Jesus says that he's there right now preparing a place for us. That in the midst of our stressful and trouble-filled lives, Jesus wants us to know that right now he is in heaven preparing a place for us. And the implication is, if that we understood what he was saying there, that would set us free from a life of fear. So what does that mean, that he's preparing a place for us? Well, in the ancient Near East, in the time in which Jesus lived, the language that Jesus is using here would have conjured up 
visions and images of what was very common practice. That is, when a son got married, he and his new spouse would come and build a place, a home, on the estate of the father, the son's dad. And that for the dad, he would have his estate filled with the homes of his children and their families. And the idea was is that for those who were wealthy especially, Jesus is drawing on this imagery of these vast and beautiful estates, these Greco-Roman villas, these Jewish estates where there were lush gardens and flowing rivers and beautiful trees and what you saw were beautiful mansions. And attached to those were the houses of the children. And all together around a giant courtyard or a beautiful estate, the whole family was there together. That's the imagery that Jesus is drawing on. That's what he's talking about. He's going to heaven to build our piece of the estate. That he's going to his father's house to add on the rooms that we will inhabit, those that are prepared for us, so that in heaven there will be a giant, marvelous, magnificent estate, and each believer in the Lord Jesus will have their own place. Now the metaphor that he's using is that of building. Now it is literally true that Jesus is preparing a dwelling place for us, but the idea is not that he's sort of up in heaven picking out wallpaper. It's like, well, Jim would like this kind. I think I'm gonna put that up in this room. That's not really what he's doing. The idea is more that he is preparing a life for us. Now that life, of course, includes a place to live, but it's so much more than that. Let me give you an illustration that might help explain what I mean. I told you that I just got back from Wheaton College where I spent five weeks on my study break. Five weeks is a long time to be away from uh, my four beautiful children and my wonderful wife. And so we made arrangements so that they might be able to come for two of those weeks. And those two weeks were going to be in the middle of that five-week period. Because they were coming, I went down to Wheaton ahead of time to make preparations. And so I found a house that we would be all be able to stay in. And when I went into that house, I took my computer with me and I Skyped back home to my family. And I remember walking around the house with a little camera on the computer, showing them all the different rooms and the kitchen. And I showed the boys the room I had picked out for them and was getting it all ready for them. And I showed the girls the room that was gonna be their room. Then I showed them out the window how close we were to campus and the big play area that was outside, the lots of green space that we had. And that was all part of preparing for them to come. But it was not just accommodation. I also knew, I also know that my children love to use the library. So I went to the Wheaton Public Library and I made arrangements for them to be able to use the library. I also thought my kids are going to love eating in the Wheaton cafeteria. I mean, who doesn't like being able to have Fruit Loops every meal of the day? You know, those big vats you just stick the bowl under. I knew they were going to love that. Soon as we walked in, I said, there's a the cereal. They were all over that. I knew that about them. 
And what I was going ahead to do was not simply get a room ready for them, but to prepare a life for them. That for the next two weeks, this is the life they would experience. And part of the great joy was to watch their faces when they came to Chicago. And they went running around this this was a beautiful old home that the college let us use. It had a front staircase and a back staircase. And they, for about a half hour, just ran up and down the two sets of staircases. And then we did the same thing running around the campus. And the students had graduated. It was empty. It was like the campus was ours. And they just ran all over the place, enjoying what had been prepared for them. See, that's what Jesus is doing for us now in heaven. He's not swinging a hammer with two by fours. He's preparing a life. And that life is designed around each of us individually. It's a place prepared for us. What do I mean? Well, for example, this week at uh, CSI, which is a children's program that we do at the church, we had a fantastic experience. There were lots of people volunteering, lots of kids, 500 some kids were here learning about Jesus, growing in their faith, but for at least three little kids, this week changed their eternal destiny. They came to faith in Christ. But imagine if you were one of the adults who helped them come to faith. Maybe you were their group leader. Maybe you were the one who was teaching a lesson that made an impact on them. Imagine you were one of those adults. The point is that if you help them come to faith, you will be the person who helped them come to faith for all of eternity. There's not going to be new people who help them come to faith. It was you. You were part of that. And so what Jesus is doing now in heaven is preparing a life for you that somehow involves them. That because you are part of their story, that your lives will be intertwined closely together in the life Jesus is designing for you in heaven. Maybe you're part of a small group here at the church. You may think that you joined the small group because you wanted to have fellowship here on earth. That's true. But the relationships you are developing and investing in, as they become more and more important to you, they will become more and more a part of the life that Jesus is designing for you in heaven. That's why in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, when all the money's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Who's going to welcome you in? Your friends. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, we all understand you can't take money with you to heaven. But Jesus says there is something you can take. You can take relationships. And that if you spend your money here, investing in the lives of people and developing relationships with people, when you get to heaven, you will find that the life Jesus has designed for you includes those relationships. That's why if you and I take our earthly money and spend it on ourselves, 
Well, we're just simply storing up treasure on earth. And that's all going to be gone. But if we do, as he says in Luke 16, and use it to invest in relationships with other people, well, that's storing up treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust don't corrupt, and where thieves don't break in and steal. What's the point of all that moths and thieves language? The point is when you get there, it'll be waiting for you. Now, Jesus is not talking about a bank account with a certain amount of money in it. He's saying the life when you get to heaven will have these relationships as part of it. Prepared specifically for you. Imagine a dad with an adult special needs daughter who during all of this life has struggled against fear and stress and trouble that, that those special needs require so much more, so much more sacrificial love. Can you imagine the kind of relationship that dad and daughter are going to have in heaven? Is Jesus going to forget what that father has put into that relationship? That while the rest of his friends were off on the golf course or spending their time in Florida, he faithfully stayed home and poured time and energy into that relationship? Can you imagine what that will be like in heaven? When the daughter is finally set free of the things that have trapped her mind and her body, and she's able to express gratitude to her dad, they will experience the deepness of a relationship beyond what most of us will experience in heaven. I'm sure they will have adjoining plots that their houses will be next to one another. And for all of eternity, they will reap the rewards of what they've put in. That's what Jesus means when he says he's preparing a life for us. That the stresses and troubles in this life are part of what he's doing for us in the future. Same is true for those in ministry, whether as a layperson or someone who gets paid to do it. Serving God is hard. It's hard work. People complain about it. People don't want to do what you ask them to do. It's difficult to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. But for everything that we're doing for the kingdom, Jesus is preparing heaven in light of that. That I'm looking forward to seeing you in heaven, to getting together again and talking about what it was like to be at Calvary Church and how we labored together for the kingdom, that will be part of the life that Jesus is designing for us. And so dads, my encouragement to you today, your kids don't understand the stress that you're under. They don't know the fear that comes into your life. Your spouse may not even understand. Your friends may not even know but Jesus sees it. And he knows that as you stand strong for your family, as you bear the weight of the pressures of this world, as you fight for your children, for your marriage, for the kingdom in this world, Jesus is designing a life for you in heaven that reflects your labors. That these things will not simply be forgotten. He sees what you are going through. 
and is right now in heaven preparing a place for you. Now there's one other aspect about what it means for Jesus to prepare a place for us. I don't want to spend as much time on this one because I feel like Tom Olson touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but it is important. Inherent in the idea that when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, not only is he preparing a life for us, I believe he also right now is preparing us for that life. That part of the process of what Jesus is doing is not only getting something ready there, but also getting us ready here. I'm excited that the 2011 NBA champions are the Dallas Mavericks. <laughs> not only because I lived in Dallas, but also because uh, my wife is from Dallas and because I found the Miami Heat to be a team that was very easy to root against. So when the Dallas Mavericks won the NBA championship, I was overjoyed. But it was interesting that if you read anything from anybody who was associated with the team for any period of time, it wasn't very long until they not only mentioned the 2011 championship, but also referenced the 2006 NBA finals. In those finals, the Mavericks were up two games to zero to the Miami Heat. They ended up losing the championship that year. And to a person, every single person associated with the Mavericks organization said, the championship this year is so much more sweeter because of the failure in 2006 because of the difficulties that they went through five years ago. Not only had they become a better team, but their enjoyment of the championship is so much richer. That's what it's like in heaven. That those who in this life experience failure and stress and burdens and fear, it is not only making us better people, but it is preparing us in such a way that when we get to the life God has designed for us, it will be sweeter than if we had never gone through that. Everybody's going to enjoy heaven, but some people will enjoy it more. And the depth of our sufferings and struggles in this life is creating within us the ability to enjoy what's coming ever more deeply. For the person who in this life has experienced the heartrending tragedy of a loved one going home far too early in life. For those who have fought against the battles of dementia and Alzheimer's. For those who have experienced persecution, real persecution for being a Christian. That as we walk through those things in this life, we are being prepared in such a way that when we get to heaven, our enjoyment will be fuller and richer and deeper than it could have been. That's why Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn 
among many brothers. All things work together for good is not a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in this life. It is a promise that must have heaven for its fulfillment. And what God is saying is, is that when you show up, when you realize the place Jesus has prepared and that he's been preparing you for that place, we will sit back and say, ah, now I get it. All things do work together for good. In this life, we will die with questions. When Christ takes us to heaven, we will see how it all worked together. So let's circle back around to where we started. The idea that this world and this life is full of trouble, stress, burdens, and frightening situations. Jesus' command to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. The reason why is because Jesus says, trust in God. Trust also in me. There's a plan. I'm still in control. What you're going through in this life is not by accident. Instead, God is sovereignly allowing these things, taking them, and using them to prepare a place for us and us for that place. You see the easy things of this life? The things that have no trouble, that cause no fear, those are the things that will simply fade away. The trials of this life, the persecutions, those are the things that will endure forever. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Why else would anybody enter into a ministry responsibility that is so difficult? Why would anybody work with troubled youth? Why would anybody, what hope could there be for someone who doesn't have a job? What hope is there for somebody who is facing a terminal illness or declining mental abilities? Of course those things would cause us fear unless we realize that God has allowed them in our lives so that he might prepare a better place for us and prepare us for that place. This is why Paul says, our light and momentary sufferings are achieving for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh them. That in reality, when you and I get to heaven, we will look back upon the troubles and the burdens of this life and say, thank God for those. They have made me who I am today. And this life that is eternal and beautiful and everlasting is a product of those things. And we will know that we were not left here alone as little children. That Jesus has gone away, but is still in control. And that everything that happens, happens because he is using it to prepare that place for us and to prepare us for that place. He says, if you look around this world, you will see trouble. If you can look to what's going on currently in heaven and what's coming in the future, you will not live in a state of being troubled. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make this a reality. Let's pray. 
Father, our eyes are blinded by what we see, but our ears are open to what your word says. Speak into the recesses of our heart. Tell us that it is so. Remind us that we can trust in you, that if it were some other way, you would have told us, but it is this way. And so you've made that known to us. Jesus, there are dads here today who perhaps came this morning expecting to feel guilty or to be beat up or whatever, who perhaps came this morning on the verge of losing their sanity, who are in troubled and difficult relationships with a spouse or with children, who are frightened of losing their job, who have been recently diagnosed with a difficult disease. Lord, I pray that this message would echo in their minds and hearts, that they would hear your voice, Jesus, telling them not to be troubled, that all of this is working together for their good. Lord, there are others here today who are not fathers, yet the same stresses and troubles are upon them. Speak to their hearts. Let them know that you see what they are going through and that even as we speak, arrangements are being made in heaven so that a life is ready for us and we are ready for that life. Jesus, how can we thank you? We will never fully understand what you have done for us and are doing for us. But in faith, we say thank you. We do long for you to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Oh,